I hope you enjoyed last week, or maybe not enjoyed last week, but actually God spoke to you last week. I know uh, a lot of people found it challenging. Some people told me it was amazing. Some people aren't talking to me after last week. <laughs> so more of the same today, eh? I've offended some people. I'm going to offend the rest of you today, probably. Uh, but that's fine. I, I just want to preach the Word of God and, and let Him do the job. If you've noticed, uh, I'm, I'm quite crafty, me. The really hard-hitting, I just read out the Bible. Then if you don't like it, well, you take it up with the author, not me. All right? So, Father, we just want to pray your presence here this morning. Lord, we seek you amongst all else. Lord, we just want you. We don't want a, 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 a good talk. We don't want a, a good time in much of it. But we want to have you, Lord God. Because we know that where your presence is, is the fullness of joy. Where your presence is, there is fullness of life. There is meaning to life. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you come and fill this room. I ask that you come and teach us this morning. You are the teacher. You are who we need to hear this morning. I ask that you just rest on our hearts. You convict us where we need convicting. You encourage us where we need encouraging. You comfort us where we need, in, where we need comforting and where we just need a slight realignment and re- revelation. Father, I pray that you would do that this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Cool. So, last week I was talking about Jeremiah 2, verse 13, and I'm going to read the same scripture. I'm going to carry on this morning. Um, The context for this scripture is the Jewish people have been naughty boys and girls, not doing as God said, so much so that God is going (laughs) to, this is drastic, he's going to chuck them out of the promised land. It's not, this, is, you know, this is serious. And in Jeremiah, God sums up the sins of the, of the Jewish people in, by saying that it's two sins. Sums them all up. And it says this in Jeremiah 2 verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So what we talked about last week was the Holy Spirit is the river. If you reject the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting God himself. That's what that's just telling you there. But the second thing was we need to be cisterns or we need to be containers that contain the glory of God. It is not good enough from here, and it's not good enough for other passages I brought, to be able to experience the power and the wonder and the presence of God and then not be able to contain it, to then share it with a dying and helpless world. But in actual fact, the Christian life is supposed to be one of walking around, giving out the glory of God, giving the joy wherever you go, not one where we retreat to a Sunday morning to, oh, this is amazing, I love God, I wish we could live on church on a Sunday morning, or whatever favourite conference you have, but instead to have a life that is covered and filled and overflowing with the presence of God. And I gave you two ways to do that. The first was to live a moral lifestyle. And I gave you Bible verses of how living immorally or living not according to the word of God is contrary to carrying the glory and how the Holy Spirit cannot fill you. This was New Testament scriptures. The Holy Spirit cannot fill you unless you submit yourself to the word of God and live a moral life. Again, I just read the scriptures. And then the second thing was this, that to be a system, to be a container, we need to learn how to seek God on our own and be filled up with his glory and his presence 
on our own, in our own home. We need to have those quiet times where God just fills the room. And I, and I said it is my hope and my desire that your best experiences with God are not here on a Sunday morning or even in your revived teams, but it's, it's when you're alone with God and he just fills your room, fills your life with his presence. And that you can get to such a state that you're just filling up with God the whole time. So that even when you're in the office, you're just overflowing and bubbling over. And people all around you are being affected by the glory of God without you even knowing what you're doing. That's where we got to. Um, I also added in fasting for those who were in Cottingham. But I want to talk a bit this morning. Oh, before I do that, um, I'm going to give you a little help in how to... How to do those two things, how to live a moral life, how to live your life based on the Bible, and how to meet with God devotionally, day by day. In September, we as a church, for those who want to, are going to be going through this transformed life book. Now in it, it's it's split into so many weeks, I think it's 10 weeks, but I'm probably wrong, with day by day scriptures, verses, and questions. And we would love to do this for those who want to as a church all together. What does this do? This will build structures within your life so that you can contain the Holy Spirit. It's not the only way. It's just one way we can help you. If you would like one of these books, you can order them from the info point. I think they're going to cost you $4.99. The guy who's done this one is Dave Smith. He's going to be one of our speakers at our Word and Spirit conference he runs an absolutely massive church in Peterborough. I think it's like, uh, something like 1,600 seater, and they fill it like five times on a Sunday. So he does know one or two things, so it's, it's worth listening to him. Okay, I want to talk about building wrong systems, building wrong containers. In that verse from Jeremiah, it didn't say they didn't bother building, they just built broken systems, their own type of systems. Now, unfortunately, the people of Israel did not abide by Jeremiah's warning or God's warning, and they didn't change their ways. So much so that they all get, and I'm going to very simplify it for those Bible teachers, they all get put into exile for about 70 years, and then they, after 70 years has passed, you get people like Nehemiah, and, and we, they, all the, well, some of the Israelites come back to Jerusalem, and they start to rebuild in the, in, in the Promised Land. But there are two problems. During the exile, the Ark of the Covenant has disappeared. Now that is very instrumental. That is very important. This is Old Testament. Where did the presence of God come? It came above the Ark of the Covenant. It was that God is, the whole thing about our God and and Jehovah is he's there, he's present, he's within his people. When the Ark of Covenant goes, it's like God has left. There is no presence or there is no river. And then the second thing is that when they actually got the people who'd been in exile for 70 years, none of them knew the commandments. They didn't know the word of God. So you've got these people coming into Jerusalem. They don't, haven't experienced the river of God and they don't know the word of God. They have not got either. So they are very... The, the people are very distraught about this and they start to have public meetings where everyone listens to the word of God being read because, of course, not everyone could read and not everyone had Bibles in those days. But for 400 years, we have a period which is called the silent years, as in God didn't really speak for 400 years. No river for 400 years. So what did the Jewish people do? Well, they had got 
the Torah. They had got the word of God. They had got the law. So what they did was they devoted themselves to the law of God. I'm going to devote myself to the structures that God's got in place. I may not have the river, but I'm still going to do what I can do, and I'm going to live my life to structures. So much so that in this time, the, the laws of Judaism went from 252 to 613. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, there is 400, well, 350 odd laws which the, the, the people of Israel are living by, which were never in the Bible to start with, but they've been put in place. Now, why did they put all these laws in place? Well, they were so convinced and so determined, we are not going to make the same mistake that got us into Babylon in the first place. We are not going to be exiled again. We are going to obey the word of God completely. So when it says, do not work on the Sabbath, we're going to create a load of laws around working on the Sabbath so we know what it is to work on the Sabbath because we don't want to break working on the Sabbath. So we'll decide you can only walk a mile and you can't do this and you can't do that. And you get all these laws and it's been continuing up to the present day so they do not break the Sabbath. It's like a very honest, good idea. Sounds brilliant. The problem is Jesus comes along and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. You see, this whole adding laws on to defining what, what the word of God says and adding a law upon a law upon a law is what the Pharisees were. That is what bought the Pharisees. This, we haven't got the presence and we're not going to break the word of God again. So we're going to make sure we put law and law and law. And do you know what? We do it in the Christian church now. So just think about, about this. I don't want to... I walk into, a, into I, well, no, I don't want to have a problem with pornography. So I decide to put some guidelines into my life. Now, these might be, okay, I'm not going to watch TV after nine o'clock. Okay, because then I probably won't see anything on TV. Um, I'm not going to go to that magazine store, I mean, that newsagent down, down the road, because when I walk to the shop, there's all those magazines, and, that, and that's causing me issues, so I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere near that. So we create these rules of, I'm not going to watch TV after nine o'clock, and I'm not going to go into newspaper shops. And then we share them. Teachers like us share them with the congregation and the whole church. Go, yeah, this is a really good idea. So we won't watch TV after nine o'clock, and, and we won't go into news agents. And then along comes a new November called Bob. <laughs> and then on his way to church, Bob goes into that news agent and buys a pint of milk. And then there's a little holy huddle. Oh, I'm concerned about Bob. He's gone into the news agent, you know. Don't go into news agents. No, when there's a news agent. And then, and then someone else popped up, you know, what? and he was talking to me about match of the day. He's been watching TV after nine o'clock. <laughs> and suddenly, the guidelines that we've created become the law. The whole point was, I want to keep my mind pure. I don't want to, to look at pornography or anything in, in that kind of area. But the sin is, you've gone into a news agent. Oh, that's bad. The sin is, you watch TV after nine o'clock. Might be match of the day. Doesn't matter. You're, 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 you're breaking pornography. You're, you're in that kind of sphere. We do it the whole time. It's what the Pharisees did. It's creating broken systems. Is our guidelines good? Yes, they are. But when they become the truth, you're adding to the Bible. And guess what? When you're going, 
do you know what? He went into the news agents. You're gossiping. Now I know gossiping is in the Bible as a sin. I take the biggest one probably in Pentecostal circles, smoking. If you're smoking, a smoker, oh, I'm not sure you could be on the leadership, I'm not sure you can do this, not sure you can do that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you cannot smoke. I'm, if, you, if you are a smoker today, I love you, I wish you would give up. I, I really do. I, I, I personally think it's, it, it's probably a waste of money, but then I waste money on other things. And it's not good for your health, but you know, I eat cream cakes and they're not good for my health. <laughs> but the point is, we make it a massive thing and you'll get huddles of Christians gossiping about that person who's still smoking. Who is it who's creating the sin? I don't know about the smoker. I know the people who are gossiping and judging. I know they're in sin. It's what the Pharisees did. You see, what happens when we build guidelines and guidelines upon God's law is we end up like the Pharisees and God himself, the Bible in the flesh turns up and we don't recognize him. Jesus turned up and the Pharisees reject him. The Pharisees devoted their lives to the Bible. They memorized whole books of the Bible. They prayed probably more than you do. They've probably given up more than you have to follow God. And yet Jesus walks among them and they do not see him because they've created a system which looked nothing like. They created structures which did not look like the original. And what they're saying, my experience doesn't match up to it. What I'm secure and safe in doesn't match up to it. And so Jesus comes and does miracles and they say, he's doing that by demons. He must be doing that by demons. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's all right. If you need to walk across, it's fine. It's, it's just this venue. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah. If, you, if, you, if you're healing people, you cannot, be, you cannot be righteous because you're not obeying my code. So therefore, you're doing it by demons. And Jesus turns around and says, if you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil... That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the one sin that will never be forgiven. What the Pharisees doing, they were building systems which weren't, they were broken. They wouldn't catch the water. And when Jesus, the word and the life turns up, they reject him. Let me turn to Matthew 23. And this is Jesus speaking. Verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. What's that mean? I am now telling you what the law is. Moses gave them the law. What the Pharisees doing? I'm telling you what the law says. And it's not the same as what Moses said. It's embellished. Verse 3. Therefore, all that they tell you to do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. This is what happens when religion comes in. People stand in judgment over others and tell people, you must do this, 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 this. Don't go into newsagents. Don't watch TV past nine o'clock. You've done that. 
you've broken the law, you're going to hell. And yet they don't help. As we continue through this, I'm not going to read it, but it's this whole chapter. It's Jesus having a go at the Pharisees. He's standing up publicly ridiculing like a person on a street corner saying, you are sinners, you are evil, you are oppressors, all the way through to verse 34. Jesus never does that for anything else. Jesus never spends that time condemning the sexually immoral. Jesus never spends that time condemning the drunks. Because this is the thing which Jesus has the biggest issue with. You see, Jesus was loved by the drunks. Jesus was loved by the sexually immoral. Jesus was loved by the tax collectors. Jesus was loved by the scum of the earth. When he preached, the worst of society would fill the crowds. If Jesus was here standing this morning, you would probably be sitting next to someone you wouldn't want to be sitting next to. Because they loved him. And yet Jesus never once dumbed down the law. He did the opposite. He put the law on steroids. Think about, think about this. He, he goes, this is the context. There's a society which have had religious leaders telling everybody how bad they are and how wicked they are and follow these rules that they can't follow. And then into that sphere, Jesus comes along and says, do you know what? If you've ever been angry at someone, you're guilty of murder. And then he says, and he was talking to men, but you can put it either way. If you've ever looked at a woman the wrong way, you're already guilty of the sin of adultery. I mean, that is tough. That is really tough. I'm a man, I know, it's really tough. But you have to understand what he's speaking to. You see, we hear that and we think, wow, that's really hard to attain to. And I believe Holy Spirit in your life can change that, can refine you. But that is a really hard level to go to. But you miss the context. Jesus is speaking to a whole crowd full of the worst sinners in history and Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were known for putting bandages on their head. Why? Because they'd walk around like this. Why were they walking around like this? And then, and then they'll bump into a door and then they'll bump into something else and they'll end up with cuts and they were very proud of all the cuts and bruises they had on their head. Why was that? It was because they already knew this. So in, in their guidelines, they've said, we're going to put bandages and put stuff over our heads so we can't see so that I don't look at a woman lustfully. So Jesus is seeing them and saying, you guys who are struggling with a lust problem you're just as bad as the worst adulterer ever. Who is he mainly speaking to? He's speaking to the whole crowd, but he's singling out Pharisees who have spent years, generations, telling the rest of the people how bad they are, how they'll never match up. And Jesus comes along and says, Pharisees, you're just as bad as everybody else. No wonder the sinners loved him. No wonder. Because for, for ages, they've had these really religious people telling them how unholy they are. Jesus comes along and tells everybody, especially the Pharisees, the religious people, how dirty and wicked they are. Yeah, yeah. That's why sinners came to him. 
Because they knew he accepted everyone. You see, the message of Jesus is this. It doesn't matter who you are. You can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. We have preachers around and they're on street corners and, and it sounds like they've got an axe to grind. It sounds like they've got in a bad mood and they're telling everybody how bad they are. And they will normally quote Romans 1, which goes through a whole load of sins, sexual immorality and other things. And then at the end of Romans 1, it says, and anyone who stands with these people and says that what they're doing is fine is also guilty of the same sin. So they stand out, outside of... Um, pride, gay pride things, they stand outside of pubs, they stand out wherever they think they can see wickedness and preach Romans 1 at them. The thing is they miss Romans 2. You see, the way Romans 1 goes, it goes through, this is, this is a whole story of the depravity of society. And so down a bit, they go into sexual immorality, and then they go even further and further and start going to things like gossip. Oh, what gossip's worse than sexual immorality? I didn't write the Bible. I'm just telling you what it says. And then, and then it goes right at the bottom. And those who identify and say what they're doing is right are, are worse than that. And then goes Romans 2 and it says, and those who know the truth, as in those who read the Bible, those who profess to be Christians, to put it into our spin, and sit in judgment of people who don't live up to their moral code are the worst of all. They don't preach that bit. But that's the bit Jesus preached. You see, the whole moral code that Jesus put everything under, I mean, I know I was talking about live morally last week, but the whole moral code is put under this one sentence, love your brother as yourself. We are sent into the world to redeem the world, not to judge the world. God, Jesus didn't come himself to judge the world. He came to save and to redeem the world. So when you, when you find either a brother in the church or someone in society and they're, and they're committing what we know in the Bible is sin, it doesn't say go and alienate them. It doesn't say go and judge them and tell them how bad they are. Do what Jesus did. Jesus went and met their point of need. And then he turned their life around. Think about the woman caught in adultery. Jesus makes absolutely no demand on her and saves her from stoning. Only once, has he, only once he has demonstrated that he can save her and that she's experienced the waterfall, she's experienced the Prince of God, she's experienced Jesus, does, she then, does he then say, go and sin no more? The woman at the well, she experiences Jesus. He offers her the living water, the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about her having so many husbands and living with someone who's not his, her, her husband. That's the one. What came first? Experiencing God. Experiencing love. Experiencing mercy. Experiencing acceptance. And then God loves you so much. He goes, and now we need to tweak this and change this and change that. But he always came with love first. Why do we do it? Why do human nature, why do we like doing that? I don't know if you remember going to school and, and not having your homework done when you came back from, from whatever it was, weekend or the night. I remember, you know, rushedly doing it on the bus on the way there, trying to get as much done as I could before the t giving it into the teacher. And then when I came to school going, what did you do? I don't know, what did you do? Did you do your homework? Uh, I don't know. Well, I did a bit of it. And as long as you found someone who'd done less homework than you, you, you felt... I'm all right, I'm all right. 
And then when Emily comes and you know, says, so have you done your homework? And I go, well, no, I haven't, but Angie's done less. <laughs> Don't pick on me, at least I've done a bit. What is that? That's all us going, I'm going to pull someone else down so I can feel a bit superior. What were the Pharisees doing? They're pulling people down so they can just lean over and go, hey, I'm not the worst, they are. What do we do when we judge other Christians or other people in the world? We're just pulling them down, just going, hey, I'm just a bit better than you. And I feel good because I'm just a bit better than you. See, we also, just like the Pharisees, put faith in our tradition over the Bible, over what God's saying. So, parents and people in this church, you know, maybe we've had some issues around the whole thing about Harry Potter. Do we let our kids listen or read Harry Potter or not? But I haven't heard any parent or any discussion about, do we let our kids watch Snow White? Snow White's about which? I'm not saying it's on the same level, but there's not even a conversation around it. Why? Because Snow White is in our traditions. It's an old story. It's fine. I grew up listening to it. It won't be a problem. Rather than analysing it, what we already know, we put to be fine. So a new move of God comes. And we have different manifestations that we've never seen before. And we go, is it in the Bible? Darn, it's not in the Bible. Because not everything's in the Bible. And then what do we next go to? Well, was it seen in Charles Wesley's day? Was it seen in Smith Oglesdale? And probably with Smith, probably. <laughs> what we're doing, we're taking, and, and it's, a, it's a good thing to look at. We're looking at history. As long as we can tick off, it's in our tradition somewhere, we can go, it's fine. But if it's new, oh no, it can't be God. It would have happened in the Wesleyan revival. It would have happened in the Welsh revival. God loves to do things which are new. The manifestations in the Welsh revival were different to the manifestations with Wesley, were different to what Smith saw. And at the time, every one of these moves of God had, they were written off by who? Mainly Christians who went back to their traditions, went back searching in the Bible and said, no, it can't be of God because I see it nowhere else in history of the Bible. Tradition can completely cover us. If you're born in, or you listen to some of the American preachers in, in, in the South, they seem to have, it's a bit naughty doing this, but anyway, they, they seem to have three ways of becoming a Christian. The first criteria for becoming a Christian and being a disciple is you have to understand English. And not just normal English, King James, 17th century English, because that's what you need to know to read your Bible. And then the second criteria for being a good disciple is you need to be literate, because we're going to study the Word of God, the King James Bible, for so long. And then the third thing is you need to know the traditions of the church, because if you do something against their traditions, even if they're in line with the Bible, that's wrong as well. What about people in some country which don't speak English and are not literate, are you telling me they have to learn English and then learn how to read before they can access God? No. So, so many of our discipleship programs, 
stop people accessing God and you say, you're not good enough unless you've done these 10 steps. Some people are not wired that way. Jesus did it very differently. Come with me, let's do some miracles, go out preaching, come back after your ministry trip and still not understand what the gospel is. Did The 12 didn't know what the gospel is because when Jesus died, they're going, it's all wrong, don't do that. And yet they've already been out preaching and ministering. What were they talking about? Haven't got a clue. But you probably wouldn't be able to do that in this church. I'd stop you because you probably wouldn't be, you wouldn't be teaching the gospel. Jesus was a lot more in experience God, work it out. Experience, work it out. Don't, we should stop limiting people because of education. And what about the flack which first happened when preachers stopped wearing ties? <laughs> I'm so glad I don't have to have that battle. People would leave over a minister wearing a tie or not. We laugh about it now, but it was a big deal. Oh yeah, they could probably fiddle the accounts a bit and if they you know, did a bit of sexual morality, as long as they cleared it all, it's fine, but you better wear a tie. What about if we change service times? What about if we change the style of music? Oh, but you can't feel his presence in rap music. It's just style. It's just style. But when we have our style and our traditions taken away from us, we feel insecure. Let me finish with this. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he talked about them being old wineskins. The gospel is poured out as new wine. What happens with new wine? It expands the wineskin. Why is it wrong to put it in an old wineskin? Because the old wineskin will burst. Why will it burst? Because it can't expand any more moment. In other words, it's lost its flexibility. How many times have we missed God because we are not flexible enough? How many times do we complain about how church runs because we're not flexible enough? How many times, oh, I can't come to that revival service, I can't do this because it doesn't fit in with my program. You see, the structures we build to contain God need to be his structures, not worldly structures. They need to be based on scripture, not on style or history. And we, who are the wineskins, need to be flexible enough so that we can take a new move of God. And so that when the new wine's poured out, we don't burst. When the new wine's poured out and it doesn't look like this anymore, when the new wine's poured out and suddenly there are new leaders in the church and they're different to how it went before, we don't reject it. But when it sounds different, when the message sounds different, when how it's outworked is different, Shall I tell you when it happened before? Oh, water everywhere. When Jesus walked the earth, he did exactly that. It wasn't what it looked like before. When Wesley did it, it wasn't like it was before. When Smith was there, it wasn't like it was before. The Welsh revival wasn't like what it was before. And those who are unable to stretch and see that it is the water of God being poured out will just end up with a burst wineskin. And they'll end up bitter because all the life has just been poured out. And they see other people favoured and they won't like it. It must be demonic. It must be something else because it can't be the Holy Spirit because it's not like what I know before. 
Why am I telling you this? Because I believe there's another wave of the Holy Spirit coming. And I know what happens when the fire of God hits the church. Half the members leave. People are under offense. Why? Because it didn't look like what they thought. They're under offense because the Holy Spirit anoints someone and raises them up. I mean, I'm guessing you're not, but I wonder how many people are offended that I'm now in this position. I'm guessing they may have left already. But what about if it ends up being a 16-year-old here who doesn't know their Bible very well, who hasn't had a job, who hasn't been married, and yet the power and the fire of God is upon them, and they can bring heaven to earth. Will we accept them or will we reject them? What happens when drug addicts start walking in here? When prostitutes start walking in here? Will we say, not in my church? They're the wrong people to be here. We, can I have just a moment of honesty? We have problems already. I already get complaints about this, this person. They shouldn't be in our church. They're like, we don't want people like this. We don't want people who are A, B, and C. I'm thinking, no, I want them. I want them. Where else are they going to get discipled? Where else are they going to get the life of God? Why would we exclude them? Why would we exclude people who, who I don't know, rub against us? We go, that's sin. We go, don't worry, love them, and let's see them transformed in the glory of God. They're in the right place at the right time. Let's see them be affected by the Holy Spirit and then disciple them. James Seeger is, it says something quite interesting. He goes, this church, I know, is too comfortable because we can leave a handbag on a seat and not expect someone to nick it. If we were going to do it like Jesus did it and how the Booth did it and how Wesley did it, you'd have a crowd and in there will be thieves and in there will be murderers and in there will be adulterers and the worst kind of sinners ever on the planet will be there and they'll, they'll get impacted by God and yet they might not be changed the first day and they might not change the second day but let them keep coming back and impacted by God's grace. And then there is a great testimony. I get so annoyed by internet and Twitter, when you get a celebrity who says something about God, oh, I went to church, or I'm, I'm, I'm discovering this, and then the, I'm offended by grace, suddenly get on and go, well, they don't live like this, and they don't do this, and they don't do that, and, that, and there's this whole list of why they cannot be a Christian. It's like, they're not a minister. They may have only given their life last week. Why are you holding up to this standard? Just because they're in the public eye does not mean they've got everything sorted yet. They're just like you and me, broken vessels who are working out how the glory of God flows through my life. And as long as they're moving on with God, go for it. Even if they're in questionable relationships. Oh, Holy Spirit, make us so forgiving. Do not miss God for offence. Do not miss God for tradition. Do not miss God because you built a system which was never the right system, the never the right structure. Can I have the worship team back, please?
See, we, we really do have to be flexible. When I, before I got married, I had got a really good system of going to the gym. I was actually just running at the time. And I got it nailed. I knew exactly what I was. And I got into a really good routine, and I was losing loads of weight and getting really fit. And then I got married. <laughs> and those routines wouldn't work anymore. But that was fine. I found new routines, and I, and I managed to, to rearrange my life and re-put routines and schedules in. And I got back on running, and I carried on losing weight and everything else. And then we had a baby. And that was even worse. But still, I managed to do it. How? By being flexible. By going, I don't need to run first thing in the morning. I don't need to run last thing at night. I, if I want to do this, I will find time to be creative and put it into my work schedule. I, ended, I was working at Raymer at the time, and this is the way I ended up doing it. I would run to work, and I would run back again. And do you know what? I was, because of rush hour traffic, it was about the same time as well. I was actually finding time, and it meant I, I did not miss out on my baby, and I didn't miss out on my wife. Then I started working with church, and then it all went downhill. <laughs> no routines, no patterns, loads of hours. How would you ever put that in? Finally, I'm getting a handle back on it until, I know, the next change comes along, next move of God, and it's all gone out the window again. When I have... When I run, when I exercise, when I, when I work my diet out, it was never the scripture, to put it like this way. Living well is. Doing enough exercise is. Eating well is. You can adapt to different pressures. You can adapt to different scenarios. You just need to be flexible. And you just need to realize, what is it all about? It's not about if you go into a news agent. It's not about if you watch TV after nine o'clock. It's about, am I living according to what God's telling me to do. Not according to what man tells me to do.